The scripture reading today is taken from John 10, verses 1 through 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Vanessa. This new year, um, as we uh, make our way towards Easter from Christmas, We've been looking at what does the Bible say about Jesus. Everybody has an opinion about him. If you look at church history, theologians have been arguing about who Jesus is, what he really means. Everyone who calls himself a Christian has an opinion. Everyone who calls himself anything else has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. But what did he say about himself? Who did Jesus claim to be? How did he describe himself? How did he understand himself? That's what we are looking at right now. And we've been looking at some famous sayings where Jesus makes claims about himself. I'm the bread of life. I'm the great shepherd. I'm the light of the world. And here, I am the gate or the door, the entryway. It's a way for us to personalize Jesus, not hearing what other people think about him, what scholars or books have said about him, but what Jesus himself says. Because every Christian, everybody, has to come to terms with Jesus. Has to come to terms with what he said, and why he came, and what he ultimately means. So that's why we're looking at this right now. And um, let me read to you the beginning of this passage. Verse 1. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. So this is an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees, the sort of religious elite of Israel. And if you look at the Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all include this confrontation because it defined Jesus' ministry. Jesus started wandering, walking, traveling around northern Israel, starting in Galilee, and he began healing people, and he began teaching he got so he got so popular that he wouldn't even go into the towns. He would stay in the wilderness, and yet people left their their professions and their work and their fields, left their towns, 
and their villages, and they came out in the wilderness to find him. Because the authority, the potency, the beauty of his teaching was such that Israel wanted to hear him. And this was a problem for the religious elites. Who is this Jesus? You know, he's got no formal training. He's from Galilee, the rural area of Israel. He's not from the city center, from Jerusalem, where all the educated people, where the uh, social and religious elites live, the powerful. He's got no family name, no famous sponsor, no credentials. Jesus was an outsider. He popped up outside the circles of power, and it upset them. Who is this guy? He was a challenge to all the insiders, a challenge to all the credentialed elites of Israel. And so these, these early encounters are filled with frustration and anger. They're confrontational. They're challenging. Worse, Jesus knew his scripture. No formal training, and yet he knew the Old Testament. This passage where he is talking about being a shepherd, about taking care of the sheep, is actually a commentary or an interpretation, or a, it's keyed off a famous passage in the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, God, through Ezekiel, says this, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord wants. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourself. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not care for the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. So when Jesus starts to claim that he is a shepherd, that the flock is going to follow his voice, he is a direct challenge to the Pharisees, to the leaders of Israel. Ezekiel wrote 600 years before Jesus showed up. But Jesus is fulfilling that promise, a direct challenge. Look at verse 2. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. 
but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him, because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Figure of speech. Um, Jesus famously taught in parables. He didn't just lecture with facts. He told stories that people could remember. And so this story, this parable of the shepherd and the flock, is really a grand metaphor for Israel and the relationship between Israel and God and Israel and its leaders. And Jesus is claiming for himself the shepherdship of Israel. Now, when you first read this, it's a little complicated because most of us have never been shepherds. And so it takes a little unpacking. But there is a wonderful book. I, I recommend it to you. A guy called Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And Philip Keller, was, he was born in East Africa, but he was educated in Canada in animal husbandry. And he was a shepherd, and he wrote this book about how to unpack and how to understand this metaphor of shepherd and flock. So he points out, and it's crucial in, in uh, understanding this um, parable, there are actually two kinds of pens when you're taking care of sheep. I mean, when it says, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. What Jesus is talking about there is the communal pen. So the first kind of pen for sheep was the pen that was at the village or the town. It was where you brought your sheep if they were going to be sold at market. It was where you brought them if there was uh, some kind of threat, uh, when winter was coming, when a storm was coming. And all the shepherds brought all the sheep of the village, and they put them in one place, and they all mixed together. And there was a hired gatekeeper, and his job was to uh, keep the gate shut and protect all the sheep. And then the shepherds individually would come to call out their flocks when they wanted to take the sheep back up on the hills. And as Keller points out, this is a, it's a very different idea from the kind of shepherd that you typically see in the West. Shepherds in the West drive the sheep. They use sheepdogs, they walk behind them, and they drive them in the direction they want them to go. But in the East, shepherds lead they sing or they have distinctive cries or whistles and they walk ahead of the flock and the flock follows them. And so this is the idea that Jesus has here. <clears throat> and so when you think about that, the sheep pen he's talking about here in the metaphor is Israel. The land of Israel, the promised land that God brought Israel, his chosen people, his flock, and he placed them, the 12 tribes, in the promised land of Israel. And of course, if you read the Bible, you know that they were surrounded by enemies. There was dissension within. There were attacks from out, from outside. And the history of Israel is this battle for the sanctity of the land and the, uh, of the people, of the community of God's people. And particularly, the corruption of God's people. Most of the Old Testament shows you the leaders of Israel, again and again, turning away from God, rebelling. 
becoming corrupt. By the way, I've had to, I've thought about this a lot, um, being a pastor. Why are there so many so many corrupt Christians? Why is religion so screwed up? Why is it that religion, Christianity, people of faith have such a bad name? And I think the reason is, I, I've talked to a number of people about this. Whenever something new is created in God's kingdom, whenever you have a new church, a new school, a new seminary, a new ministry, when anything begins, there's no glamour in it. There are no resources. There's nothing really to join. Who shows up? Only people of faith. I mean, we just heard that uh, Jeremy and his wife are going out to Patterson to start a new ministry. What a stupid idea. There's not enough money. There's no buildings. There's no kids. There's nothing out there. There is zero glamour in going to Patterson. So what kind of people are going to join him? Lunatics like him. People of faith. People who believe God is calling them, sending them, supporting them, guarding them. It's the only reason to get involved. It's a stain with the beginning of this church. We still don't have our own building. When this church first began to meet, there was just a few people in a big room. You had to have faith. There was no glamour in it. There was no prestige. There was nothing to join that would give you any payback. It was a pure act of faith and commitment to God and God's promises. And therefore, there's a certain purity to the beginnings of all Christian churches, Christian schools, Christian ministries, Christian projects. It all begins out of faith because there's nothing else. But of course, if God is in it, and it grows, and it becomes successful, suddenly you have a school that is successful. It's good to have in your CV. Or a church where prominent people go. Or an institution that has a name that is worthwhile associating yourself with. And so over time, all Christian institutions, all spiritual institutions, become corrupted. Because people start joining them for reasons other than God, other than faith, other than how can I serve, but rather how can this institution, this group of people, this church, this ministry, how can it serve me and advance my kingdom and my agenda? It's what happened to Israel again and again and again. People becoming leaders not because they're being faithful to God, but because they wanted the prestige of being one of the elites. In fact, if you look at the history of the Christian church, it is the history of remarkable renewals amid remarkable corruption. And by the way, we're not safe from it too. One day, we're going to corrupt ourselves just as much. Maybe some of you are here for the wrong reasons. Who knows? Are you here for God? Are you here because he's called you? Or are you here for other reasons? The church that I started at in, in Manhattan 
started with people of faith and now is the place that single people go to find a mate. It's the way you go to network if you want to be an actor or you want to be an opera singer or you want to be an artist because there are 7,000 people and they're into everything. It happens to us all. So we shouldn't be too uh, self-righteous when we look at this passage. Corruption enters into all human institutions. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus is comparing himself to the shepherd, and the people who follow him to the sheep who follow the shepherd's voice. The sheep who their ears have been filled with unrighteous rulers, corrupt kings. Herod was a... Um, a puppet king of the Roman Empire. Israel was filled with voices from prophets, from revolutionaries, from philosophers, from mystics, all calling out to Israel to follow them. But when Jesus showed up, he spoke as one who had authority, and people began to follow him. Because all they needed to be the people of God was to follow Jesus' voice. Verse 7. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. So what does Jesus mean here when he's calling himself the gate? Well, he's, he's referring to a second kind of pen that was used for sheep in Israel. So the first kind is the communal pen close to the town or the village with a hired gatekeeper who the shepherd had to go to and speak to to get his sheep out. But this second type of pen is the personal pen. Shepherds would scatter into the hills and the wilderness around the towns and villages to find pasture for their sheep. And they couldn't come back every night. And so they would create small enclosures up in the hills, safe places for their flock to spend the night. I didn't realize it until I read uh, Philip Keller's book, but I had seen these as a child. I grew up uh, in Wales. That's where my family comes from. And if you walk the Welsh hills, you come around, around these circles of stones that are about three to five feet high. They have the entrance, which is always away from the weather. And they're great places on a blustery day to crouch into and uh, make yourself a cup of tea and warm yourself up or pitch a tent. They're everywhere. I had no idea what they were. I thought they were maybe the foundations for huts. But they're everywhere, lonely, deserted places. Well, they're this second kind of sheep pen. At evening, the shepherd would call in the flock and bring them to uh, a sheltered ravine or a circle of stones. Some of them are very ancient, by the way, in Wales. Or in the desert, a circle of thorn bushes that the shepherd would cut down. And he would sit at the gate. And then he'd call the sheep in one by one, and he'd examine them. He'd see if they were wounded, to see if they were sick, if their 
feet were hurt, he'd go over them by hand to make sure that they were safe, and he would count them in. They'd come to him, he'd examine them, and then he'd send them behind him into the safe enclosure until every one of the shot of the flock was accounted for, safe and healthy. One by one, individually called, examined, accounted for, and made safe. This is the second hen that Jesus is talking about here. And so the shepherd, at the entrance to the enclosure, became the gate, because that's where he'd camp and have his fire. And he'd make sure the sheep were safe inside and that the predators were kept outside. All you had to do to be safe was to go to the shepherd, and he would let you in. So what does this mean? We have this beautiful image of Jesus as the shepherd of Israel, Jesus as the shepherd of a flock, personally, hands-on, involved. Well, I'm going to suggest three applications for you. The first is this idea of recognizing the voice of the shepherd, recognizing Jesus' voice. Verse 3, the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So here's a problem that many Christians have, a problem that I have. Why doesn't God tell me what to do? Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the world? Overwhelmed by your life, your career, your relationship? Have you ever wished that God would just tell you what to do? Who to marry, where to work, where to live, how to spend your money, how to cut your hair, whatever it is, where to go on vacation. And he doesn't. Why is that? I'd suggest to you and by the way, I've come to this by looking at my own prayer life. I'd suggest to you it's possible that rather than treating Jesus as you would a shepherd, a voice to listen to and to follow, you're treating, and I am treating Jesus as a taxi cab driver who we want to, want to take where we want to go. I know what I want. I always knew what I wanted out of life. I know what I need. I know what I deserve. And so I ask for that in prayer. Politely, it's God after all. But my prayer life, the agenda of my prayer life, is defined by what I need and what I know that I deserve. And if it doesn't work, if God doesn't listen, if, no matter how politely I pray by myself, then I try to gang up on him by asking other people to pray for him, pray for me, and pray for what I know that I need. And if that doesn't work, and this sometimes happens in this church, people will ask me to pray for them. Maybe they're not listening to my prayers. Maybe they'll listen to the pastor's prayers. Or, you know, think of the Catholic Church, the saints, or Mary, or anybody, ganging up in God so that he'll get the message and give us what we deserve. What is happening? We think we know where we should be going. We think we know what our life should look like. We think we know what we are and what we should be. And we're asking Jesus to give us a ride, to get us to where we really want to be. 
But what if he truly is God? What if he alone really knows who we are and what we are and what we deserve and where we're meant to be? Then it only makes sense to listen for his voice, to follow him and not our own agenda. Think about that the next time you pray. Are you praying your own agenda, your own idea about yourself? Or do you allow in your prayer life any space for God to speak? Are you ever silent in your prayers? By the way, a wonderful prayer is to pray the Psalm 23 out loud, maybe more than once, and then just wait. And if your mind wanders, repeat, the Lord is my shepherd, and listen. And see if God says anything different. A great thing to do, by the way, at the beginning of the day, before other voices and other agendas claim your attention and claim your mind. Second thing to consider. Is it really Jesus' voice that you are following? When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Have the voices of strangers taken over your life, your self-image, your understanding of yourself, your future, what you are. The voices that have said in your past, maybe in your family, or in school, or at college, or in your workplace, that say, you're smart, or you're beautiful, or you're free. Or perhaps say, you're stupid, you're lazy, you'll never amount to anything. People who have said to you, you are just a consumer, or you're wasting your life, or you should work harder, or you've come a long way, babe, or you're boring, or you, you shouldn't stay in New York, you should come home with us. Or you should be married. Or you deserve it now. Or if you're smart, you can retire at 30. All the adverts, all the voices, the ideologies, the philosophies, the politics, all the different groups in the world that are trying to call to you, to define you, to tell you what you are and what the good life is. Every slogan, every book, every movie, they all have points of view. They all clamor. Think of the Internet, by the way. What a wonderful way to spread the clamor of our civilization and fill our minds with noise. What about listening for Jesus' voice instead? What about, you know, we are going to approach the Lent season pretty soon, the 40 days before Easter. Traditionally, Christians have fasted. Fasted from food or fasted from something. Have you ever considered fasting from the internet or TV? Fasting from the thing that distracts you in the morning so that you don't pray. So that you can listen for Jesus' voice and not be filled with the voices of strangers who don't love you. They just want something from you. Third thing that I'd like to say to you about this passage. 
Jesus here portrays himself as the one who lets us in. The ultimate outsider who wants us to join him. There was a, an amazing speech given um, in London uh, decades ago by C.S. Lewis. And he spoke to a graduating class at King's College in London. And they weren't predominantly Christian. He wasn't there to uh, speak about Christianity so much. He wanted to warn them. These were some of the smartest people. Uh, and he wanted to warn them about a temptation they would face in their life. Something that he called the inner ring. Perhaps some of you have read his uh, speech. He starts with a quote from War and Peace by Tolstoy. And let me read that to you and see if you can pick up this idea of the inner ring. When Boris entered the room, Prince Andre was listening to an old general wearing his decorations. He was reporting something to, to Prince Andre with an expression of soldierly civility on his purple face. All right, please wait, Andre said to the general, speaking in Russian with a French accent, which he used when he spoke with contempt. The, the moment he noticed Boris, he stopped listening to the general, who trotted imp imploringly after him, begging to be heard, while Prince Andre turned to Boris with a cheerful smile and a nod of the head. Boris now clearly understood what he had already guessed, that side by side with the system of discipline and subordination which were laid down in the army regulations, there existed a different and more real system, the system which compelled a tightly laced general with a purple face to wait respectfully for his turn, while a mere captain like Prince Andre chatted with a mere second lieutenant like Boris. Boris decided at once that he would be guided not by the official system, but, but by this other unwritten system. Tolstoy's point, and Lewis's point, is that within human institutions, in schools, colleges, within professions, within businesses, there is always an inner ring. The cliques, the, the in-gang, the social elite, the beautiful people, the cool kids, the fast-tracked employees, the in-crowd. They are the inner ring within any social institution, despite what the formal titles of people in that institution are. And they're not necessarily the best or the brightest, not the best at their job, but they're the ones who magically have entered the inner ring of acceptance. Now, not all inner rings are bad. Sometimes you do need a small group of competent persons to get the job done. You need an inner ring of certified brain surgeons so you know who to trust with a scalpel. A band needs players who can actually play musical instruments in order to be a band. So inner rings are not always bad. But the problem is when inner rings define themselves and exist primarily just to exclude other people, to define who the in-crowd are and the out-crowd are. And the problem is so much of our life, in our careers, in our social circles, is defined by being 
or getting into that inner ring. Working like a dog at work, extra hours, so you'll be noticed and fast-tracked. Putting up with humiliations and snubs so that you can be part of the in-crowd in your neighborhood or your school or what your social uh, group. Looking for the approval of people you don't respect because they're in and you desperately want to be in. That is C.S. Lewis's point. And they are everywhere. There was a wonderful show on This American Life on the radio where um, it happened on the Upper West Side. This homeless guy was going on the platform and he would stop in front of every person and he'd say, you're in, you're out. And he moved along. And the one telling the story said, attention developed on the platform. Everybody was waiting to see whether they were in or out as he woke up. This is a homeless person on the subway. They wanted desperately to be in. We never want to be out. We never want to be excluded. We never want to be the one that isn't cool enough. We don't want the humiliation of being an outsider. Why do we play such social games? Why do we spend so much time and energy on trying to climb the social ladder, on getting on the inside track of becoming part of the beautiful people? Well, the Bible is very clear and specific about the reason. The Bible says the reason is that since the first human beings were kicked out of the ultimate insider's club in the Garden of Eden, they've been trying to get back in. But there is the ultimate bouncer outside the club, a cherubim with a flaming sword. Nobody can get back in. And so we all feel unworthy. We all want to be accepted and get back in, but we know that we're not worthy of it. Why do we want to be in? Because we want to be loved, and we want to be safe. We want to be cherished. We want to be protected. We want that smiling face to say, welcome, you're home. We want to be in the place where everyone knows our name, where we are exactly who we're meant to be and loved for it. And that's what makes Jesus' invitation so powerful. Jesus, although the Pharisees saw him as an outsider, Jesus was the ultimate insider. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was inside the most exclusive club of all, the Trinity, that existed and has existed before all of creation, from which all life and being emerges. And when he says you're in, when he personally invites you in, you are being invited in to that exclusive club. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There's the promise. How did Jesus do that? How did Jesus fulfill this promise? by making himself an outsider. He left heaven to become one of us. 
he put himself under the law so he would be equal with us. He took everything that we're ashamed of onto himself and on the cross was publicly humiliated, naked, in agony. They took him outside Jerusalem so he would die outside on a trash heap. Jesus, the ultimate insider, became an outsider so that we could come in. You know, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a curtain that separated the people of God, Israel, from that God who was holy, holy, holy. So holy that only one person once a year after elaborate preparation could even enter to worship. Luke tells us this on the cross. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. He breathed his last because his work was done. The curtain was torn. The last barrier between God and his people was removed. And so we are invited in. If you are a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he invites you in to the inner ring, the inner sanctum, to the family table, which we're going to go to in a moment, to be with God forever. All we have to do is trust and believe and follow his example, his voice. I'd like to end with Psalm 23. And as I read it, think of everything we've talked about and ask yourself the question, who do I think Jesus is? Is he truly my shepherd? Am I truly following his voice alone? The Lord is my shepherd. I like nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, may this be our prayer. May this guide our lives and our thoughts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.